Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers, examining about 100 pages an episode while giving my commentary, my thoughts, and um, my and some historical context for these works. Today, we're going to be continuing our study of the novels of the Harlem Renaissance and starting with, we're going to start, today we're going to start looking at Jesse Redmond Fawcett's wonderful novel, Plum Bun, a novel without a moral. The music that you heard at the start of this episode was Blind Willie Johnson's Mother Child Had a Hard Time. It was, it was recorded around the time this novel came out, I think within a year or so. And I think the theme fits, um, as we'll see shortly. So, uh, the author of this novel, Plum Bun, Jesse Redmond Fawcett, grew up in an interracial family. Her, in this way, she's, she's like uh, Nella Larson, whose novel Quicksand we looked at last time. But her mother, Anne Fawcett, died when she was young, and her minister father remarried a white woman named Bella Huff who had three children with her father. Jessie Fawcett spent her education at a white high school, but she could not get into college due to her, her race initially. She was finally able to enter Cornell in 1901, where she studied the classics. After college, she got involved in racial politics through her association with W.E.B. Du Bois, who brought her in as an editor of The Crisis. She wrote her first novel in 1924. Plum Bun came out in 1928. She seems to have had a more traditional political life than any of the other Harlem Renaissance writers we've looked at so far. She, for instance, attended the 1921 Pan-African Conference, which was devoted to improving conditions for the black diaspora and particularly for attacking and questioning imperialism in Africa itself. This conference seems to have been a reflection on the Wilsonian moment and the push for a broader reading of natural self-determination. For those of you who don't know, uh, one of the 14 points that Wilson used when he created his, his, his justification for the United States going into World War I was, you know, he called that the 14 points. It had a lot of political stuff and stuff about international policy. And of course, it, it offered up the creation of the League of Nations. But one of its central provisions was national self-determination. Um, and, and of course, during the Treaty of Versailles, this was implemented, but only in Europe and only to a certain degree. Of course, so like Serbia was able to create the state of greater Yugoslavia or a greater Serbia, which was Yugoslavia at the time. And of course, you had Czechoslovakia, which was a Czech dominated state. Um, now, as we now look at the map of Europe, we see many of these were even further subdivided on the principles of national self-determination. But the important point for the Harlem Renaissance writers was that this was not applied to Asia and in particular Africa. The colonized states did not get an option for self-determination. And one of the things the 1921 Pan-African Conference did was try to uh, question the, the, the limits of, of the Versailles Treaty. She quit working for the crisis when her literary career took off, and she eventually published four novels. Jesse Redman Fawcett died in 1961. Now, Plum Bun, a novel without a moral, is about passing. That is, African-Americans living lives as white people. 
usually in cities and far from their homes to avoid discrimination or to acquire the advantages of whiteness. Along with the early novel, along with the early novel The House Behind the Cedars by Charles Chestnut and Nell Larson's novel Passing, Plum Bun is one of the most important American novels on this theme. The other would be uh, Johnson's autobiography of Next Colored Man, which I'm sure I'll get to at some point in this this podcast. Not in this series though. I'm going to spend a couple or most more likely three episodes on this novel, but it is important to give a broad overview of the story first. So I'll do that here. I I don't always do this, but uh, for this novel, I will. The main character is Angela Murray, a very light-skinned African-American. Her mother is light-skinned and her father is dark-skinned. Both her mother and Angela are light enough to pass. Although her mother um, did not do it as a lifestyle and seemed to embrace her African-American identity. An earlier, early theme of this novel is young Angela having her racial identity exposed and her friends and others feeling betrayed or questioning, like, why didn't you tell us you were colored? It is not clear if Angela was not telling people she was colored because of identity confusion or because she was willfully withholding the information, in a sense, practicing at passing. Uh, Angela's sister Virginia is much darker and unable to pass and therefore is forced to accept her racial identity and face the racist society head on. Eventually, Angela decides to go to New York City and live as a white woman. She gets involved with a wealthy white man named Roger. This is a relationship based on deception. Angela is lying about her identity, her name, and her background. Roger teases marriage, but is exposed as a liar in his own right because he wanted only to have a basically a kept mistress uh, and wanted only a sexual relationship with uh, very beautiful Angela. Angela eventually reveals that she is black, uh, both to her friends and uh, in particular to a a sort of boyfriend who turns out to be a man who is also passing. His name is Anthony. Uh, He was also uh, pretending to be white and she confesses. I think he confesses to her first and then she comes out later on as passing to him. But so she eventually she comes out and she comes out to Roger too, um, breaking up that relationship with him. She makes peace with her sister, who has also come to live in New York City, but she's coming to live in New York City as a black woman migrating from, I guess they they grew up in Philadelphia. So she's not migrating from the South like many um, people in the Harlem Renaissance who who lived in New York. But she she is moving to the city, but she's, she's coming as a black woman and she's taking part in black culture and black politics and the social scene there. She eventually does make peace with her sister, uh, who, uh, but there's a lot of tensions there because Angela, with Angela, because Angela uh, slighted her as much as, as much as she had to, to not be exposed as, as black. Uh, if she were to associate too much with her sister, Virginia, you know, the secret would get out. Now, Angela, who is an artist by profession, eventually at the end of the novel decides to move to Paris to pursue her art and go to a place where she can be more open about her racial heritage. Around the same time, she meets a biracial man named Anthony. Well, actually, she met him earlier in the novel, but at the end of the novel, it it seems that they're going to get together at the end. Anthony goes to meet her in Paris, and it seems to lay the groundwork for a a relationship, at least, or perhaps a marriage that's based on, on truth. The novel is structured by Fawcett in a circle. It's divided into five parts. The first part is called Home. The second part is Market. The third part is plum bun. The fourth part is home again. And the fifth part is market done. Now, this is based on a poem that she puts at the beginning of the novel as an epigraph. And here's the poem. 
It might be a song. I don't know. It says, to market, to market, to buy a plum bun. Home again, home again, market is done. So it's almost like a children's rhyme. Um, yeah, I think it might be. Anyways, so that kind of creates the structure of the parts. Um, home is set in her childhood in Philadelphia, uh, where she learns how to pass, essentially, um, mostly by watching her mother. Market is about her adventures in New York, living as a white woman. The climax of the second part is Angela denying her sister in a crowded train station. The third part, Plum Bun, uh, shares the title with a novel, obviously. A plum bun, as you know, you might guess, is like a fruit cinnamon roll or something. So the, it's white on the outside with black parts, blackness inside in the form of the plums, dried plums. In this part, Angela learns that Roger is not serious and that relationship begins to deteriorate. Home Again. The fourth part centers on Angela coming to terms with her relationship and her heritage. She ends things with Roger while developing a relationship, uh, or at least a friendship with Anthony. And then Market is Done closes the novel in a fairly ha happy way. Angela is out as an African-American, and she sets to decide what to do with her future. Uh, and eventually she decides going abroad is the right thing for her. It seems to me that this is the most overtly political of the novels we've been looking at in the series on the Harlem Renaissance. Despite being subtitled A Novel Without a Moral, it has the strongest lesson about taking pride in one's heritage and accepting it as a foundation of the good life. However, we should add that this is the first of our characters in the series that had a choice in the matter. Helga Crane from Quicksand was biracial, but uh, there's no sense that she could pass. She ends up just wandering around until fate lands her in a place where she can settle, even if she settles miserably. And I urge you to go back and listen to that episode on Quicksand if you're interested in that. Fawcett and her character is given distinct choices, white or black, New York or Paris, or Philadelphia for that matter. We are essentially told at the end what the right choice is by our author. In this sense, the novel definitely does have a moral. We are fairly ex explicitly told that by passing, Angela is unable to be a good artist, unable to maintain happy relationships, unable to have a, keep a good friendship with her sister unable to basically be anywhere comfortably. It's only by accepting her heritage that she can become a good artist, that she can reintegrate into society, that she can have fulfilling relationships. So yes, it seems that this is uh, very directly giving her character, you know, gives the character a choice, but there's only a right choice. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about this, to be honest. And I think I'll want to reconsider it when I look at other stories about passing, such as Chestnut's House Behind the Cedar and Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Now, I have not read those books in a while, but I seem to remember them dealing with this issue without trying to give life lessons to the characters. It's just a little bit more, I guess, uh, what do I want to say here? Just a little bit more matter of fact in those novels. This one seemed to me a bit, a bit heavy handed in how it dealt with this issue. Anyways, let's get into the text. I, I'll just look at the first part, home, in this episode, because it's quite rich and there's a lot going on. And I'll take on uh, the other two parts um, in the following episode, or probably two episodes. Now, one of Angela's first lessons growing up is the power of whiteness. And I'll just jump right into the text and quote from it. It was from her mother that Angela learned the possibilities for joy and freedom, which seemed to her inherent in mere whiteness. No one would have been more amazed that, than that same mother if she could have guessed how her daughter interpreted her actions. Certainly, Mrs. Murray did not attribute what she considered her happy, busy, sheltered life on tiny Opal Street to the accident of her color. She attributed it to her black husband, 
whom she had been glad and proud to marry. It is equally certain that the white skin of hers had not saved her from the occasional contumely and insult. The famous actress for whom she had once worked was aware of Matty's mixed blood and, boasting temperament rather than refinement, had often dubbed her white. And then the N-word's there, but uh, I, I made a decision not to say that here. But um, you can fill it in in your mind. So Angela's getting the whiteness, the lessons of whiteness taught to her through her mother. And her mother is not, as, as I said, suggested before, not making a decision to pass. She's, she's married to a black man. She, does, she doesn't move around. So it's, or we're married to a dark skinned man, I, I mean. So it, it's not that she's doing that, but it's the day-to-day -day things that matter for, for Angela's observation. It's when they're out shopping or something with her and they just, you know, go, you know, don't make a thing of, of their racial background. Um, so it seems to be very under the radar, right? It's not that she's interested in passing, her mother anyways. It's just this awareness that builds up that her mother has an easier time in a racist society than her sister or her father do. One Saturday evening excursion left a far-reaching impression. Mrs. Murray and Angela had spent a successful and interesting afternoon. They had browsed among the contents of a small exclusive shop in Walnut Street, and they had soda at Adams on Broad Street, and they were standing finally in the portico of the Walton Hotel, deciding with which, with fashionable and idle elegance what they should do next. A thin stream of people, constantly passing through an occasional glance at the quietly modish pair, the well-dressed assured woman and the refined and no less assured daughter. And it goes on this way. So we see the, how comfortable they are in white society, and that's the lesson that Angela is learning. Angela's father talks to his wife about um, a certain incident where, actually it's the same incident I was just reading from, where they're, they're very self-assured and opened. And, and Angela is told by her mother. Okay, here's what I, I'll just keep reading this just so you know what happens here. Angela had put on her gloves and was waiting for a mother who, had draw, draw, who, who was drawing on her own with great care. When she glimpsed in the laughing, hurrying Saturday throws the figure of her father and of Virginia, they were close enough for her mother, who saw them too, to touch them by merely descending a few steps and stretching out her arm. In a second, the pair had vanished. Angela saw her mother's face change with trepidation, she thought. She remarked, It's a good thing Papa didn't see us. You'd have to speak to him, wouldn't you? But her mother, giving her a distracted glance, made no reply. Now, this... This very scene is replicated later on in the novel, when in New York, Angela refuses to acknowledge her sister in the crowded bus station because she because there was a white man there that she knew. Now, Angela's father talks to his wife about this incident, but it's thrown off as a playful mistake and perhaps just a bit inconsiderate. It's not exposed to what, is, what it is, which is denying racial heritage for social advantage and even the most insignificant and slight social advantage. We learned some details about this growing up, about the different breakfast preferences of the sisters and the different ideas about church both of them embraced. All of this shows that color seems to be creating two very different young women. Now, they're good friends throughout the novel. They, they have their conflicts in New York. But, you know, this is a, an important relationship for both of our characters. And for Angela, she very much loves her sister. So it's not that she wants to fully turn her back on her family. Yet we do see the creation of two very different young women uh, in this section. 
We learn how their parents met also, and we learn how passing played a role in her mother's early life. It is in chapter four that we get the first taste of Angela trying her hand at passing herself, taking what she's learned from her, watching her mother um, to heart and directing it into action. It involves her friends, Mary Hastings, and an election for what would be the president of the school magazine. So um, she's at school and it's, you know, all her classmates are white. And there's an election for, yeah, the president of this kind of school magazine or school newspaper or whatever, and Mary's Mary's elected. uh, And she chooses as kind of assistant editor, Angela, right? And, you know, because they're good friends. But then one of the other classmates who knows that Angela is black says this. I don't know how it is with the rest of you, but I should think I should have to think twice before I trust my subscription money to a colored girl. Mary said in utter astonishment, colored? Why, what are you talking about? Who's colored? Angela, Angela Murray. That's who's colored. At least she used to be when we all went to school at 18th and Oxford. Mary said again, colored? And then, Angela, you never told me you were colored. Angela's voice was as amazed as her own. Tell you that I was colored? Why should I have ever told you I was colored? Why, why should I? There, said Esther. See, she never told Mary that she was colored. What would she have done with our money? Now, that's uh, another level I just noticed there is this, this idea that, oh, you lie about your racial heritage and you must be, you know, a thief. And um, knowing racist assumptions about black people at the time, certainly uh, this is just adding to that, to those, uh, those assumptions. Now, Mary does try to restore the friendship that seems broken by this. But I really want to focus on her response here because it, it's the same conversation is given twice where someone finds out that she's black and Angel's response is, why should I have told you that I was colored? Why should I? Now think about that and we're going to come to it when we, I think we get to the other scene where the same language is used. Now after her, her father dies, her mother soon dies after that and that's part of this opening section is the death of both of her parents. Uh, so the, the two sisters inherit some resources, right? They have a house and they have some cash and there's insurance money and things like that. So they're in a decent situation financially. Um, Angela goes to an art academy and there she starts to engage in passing again. And this is how it's worded by Fawcett. She did not mention the fact of her Negro strain. Indeed, she had no occasion to, but she did not believe that this fact would cause any change in attitude, artists were noted for their broad-mindedness. They were the first person in the world to judge a person for his worth rather than any hallmark. All right, so that's how she excuses passing, which is kind of an odd way, I guess, to excuse it because she's on the one hand saying, if they knew I was black, it wouldn't matter. But on the other hand, she's not telling anyone she's black. She is exposed by a classmate who recognized her from high school. And the teacher confronts her, and we get the same conversation we had with Mary Hastings. Um, again, but Miss Murray, you never told me you were colored. And then Angela replies, colored? Of course I never told you I was colored. Why should I? So this question, why should I? Why should I? That's what we want to look at from right now. We could take this one of two ways, I guess. One is the innocent way. Why it just never came up. We're all friends. Why would I mention such a thing? The other is more cynical. Of course I would not tell you. Why would I tell you? Why should I eat the SHIT from white society when I don't need to? 
I perhaps unfairly was thinking of an adulterer who maybe doesn't wear his wedding ring on a date and simply never tells the woman he's with that he is married. When exposed, he may say, well, why should I have told you with the same kind of dual meaning, right? The first part of the novel ends with Angela confronting Virginia, often called Ginny in the novel, about her decision to move to New York as a white woman. And we have a very interesting conversation about practicality here. You know, there's, there's really no secrets between these sisters. Uh, Virginia knows Angela can pass if, if she wants. She says, well, I thought of it. I thought and thought. I guess, I guess really I've had it in my mind for a long time. But last night it seemed to stand right on my consciousness. Why should I shut myself off from all the things I want most? Clever people. People who do things. Art. Travel. And a lot of things which are in the world for everyone, really, but which are only for white people, as far as I can see, get their hands on. I mean scholarships and special funds. Patronage. Oh, Ginny, you don't know. You don't think you can understand the things I want to see and know. You're not like me. Right. And Ginny's response is, as we might expect, you know, also very practical. It's like, yes, I know that's the world we live in, of course, but I don't have those same choices for you as you do. And then it, and the, this is a tension throughout the novel is why wouldn't you take advantage of this, especially in such, you know, we're, 1920s, our race relations are really bad. There was lynchings every week in the South, race riots, uh, you know. In, in, in cities, not just in the South, but in, in northern cities. 1919 had one big one in Chicago. So it's, it seems, you know, both sides, you can see both sides of the, of the argument, I guess, is the point I'm making. Um, and I just wanted to say one thing about the names of these characters. You know, Angela and Angel and the association of angelic uh, features with whiteness. Of course, is common uh, in depictions of angels. They're often white, bright. Virginia, uh, even though they're living in Philadelphia, she's named Virginia, uh, so she's got one foot in the South, uh, and we, I guess, we can assume the Black South. There, in the idea, the idea of Virginia being a more biracial or more openly biracial society than, you know, Philadelphia um, before the Black Great Migration, anyways. So Virginia's kind of, you know, got a foot in blackness, I guess is the point I'm making, just even in her name. Well, her parents, by giving Angela the, the more angelic name, is, is putting both her feet in whiteness. Anyways, I don't know. Maybe I'll think about that before the, I record the next episode and maybe get back to you on it. Well, that does it for part one of the novel. Uh, in the next episode, which I think will be short, I think I'm going to do two more episodes on Plum Bun. Um, but that mean both will be relatively short, I guess. And I've been noticing these episodes getting a little bit long. This one's already up to almost 30 minutes. And I don't want that. I, I wanted 20-minute episodes when I started out on this, but it hasn't always worked out. So a couple short episodes will will be fine. The first we'll talk about Angela's life in New York, passing as a white woman. And the second will be about the resolution of the novel and its major themes. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. I would love to hear your opinions and your comments and your feedback. Now, I know I just scratched the surface of these texts, and, and this one in particular, and that the real experts are out there. Um, if you enjoyed this, please rate, comment, or subscribe on iTunes, and I'll be back in, after reading 100 more pages to give you some more thoughts on uh, Jesse Redmond Fawcett's Plum Bun. Thanks again for listening. I'm a hard time. 
Nobody on earth can take your mother's place when, when mother is dead, Lord. Nobody on earth take mother's place when mother dies. Nobody on earth take mother's place when it was starting fade away. Nobody treats you like mother will. When 